Let's hear the word of God from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and reading down through the end of verse 9. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints from the sole of the foot. Even to the head there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 1. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to hear to hear with understanding, to hear with meekness of heart, to hear with faith. Lord, apart from the work of your Spirit, the Word of God will not soften and change and transform our hearts. It will only harden them further. Lord, we disavow any such outcome. We desire to have our hearts worked on, exposed, their dark secrets revealed, if that's what needs to happen. We desire to be corrected and amended, but Lord, we desire that your word would work in us for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we start a new series in the book of Isaiah, of course, we need to bear in mind the book of Deuteronomy. That's not arbitrary. I'm not just saying that. I'm not trying to throw out a curveball. It's reality. Isaiah reminds us, points us back to the book of Deuteronomy with the way he chooses to begin his prophecy when in verse 2 he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. That is an echo, a reminder of the song of Moses that... Moses taught to the people in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. If I'm reading the time indications at the end of the book of Deuteronomy correctly, the very day that Moses died, God instructed him, obviously before he died, to teach the children of Israel a song. Then Moses pronounced a blessing on each one of the 12 tribes. And then Moses went up the mountain and saw the promised land and died, and God buried him. Now, that song of Moses, Moses taught to the people 
so that they would remember it, so that they would sing it back and forth to one another over the years, and so that it would be a perpetual testimony to them that God had redeemed them, that God had been merciful to them, but also that their response to the grace of God was not adequate, that they were characterized by repeated rebellion. Now, in that Song of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses appealed to the heavens and the earth to bear witness of what God had done for his people, as well as how they had responded to it. So as we come to the beginning of the book of Isaiah, verse 1, of course, is a title. It tells you what the book is about. It tells you who, it tells you what, it tells you when. Who is Isaiah, the son of Amos, and of course we'll become more familiar with Isaiah, his life, his family, as we work through the book. What is a vision which he saw? Now, of course, Isaiah does have what we would think of as a vision in chapter 6. He sees, he experiences something above and beyond the ordinary. But a lot of what is classified as a vision is the word of the Lord or the burden that the Lord has for this people group or that nation or whatever it may be. So vision is a broad term here. It's not meant to say that everything that Isaiah knows, everything that Isaiah passes on from God would happen to him in a vision when he saw things that normally you wouldn't be able to see. But it's meant to emphasize the revelatory character of this. Isaiah is not making this up. Isaiah is not just coming up with stuff that he thinks is appropriate. It is communicated to him by God. That's the real message of it being the vision of Isaiah. As for when, well, you can see that he was prophesying in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Basically, what is happening in this period of time is the Assyrian crisis. Assyria is on the rise. Assyria is taking over other nations. Now, like all empires, it has its ups and downs. There are times when Assyria is expanding. There are times when Assyria is shrinking. There are times when Assyria is more or less of a threat. But Assyria is lurking in the background until it is eventually destroyed and a new international threat appears on the scene. Babylon, but we'll talk a lot more about Assyria and Babylon, Lord willing, as we go forward. Isaiah's ministry was a long one. Uh, a modest estimate would put it at about 46 years of prophesying, because if he was prophesying the year that King Uzziah died, and he came down to when messengers from the king of Babylon came to congratulate Hezekiah on a recovery from illness, that's going to include over four decades, and it could easily be five decades or even more. So Isaiah has access to the kings of Judah. Isaiah is a well-known figure, not just in the book of Isaiah, but he's mentioned in other historical writings, and he has a revelation. That revelation is centered on Judah and Jerusalem, but extends, of course, more widely than that. And what is that? Revelation about? Well, 
Isaiah chooses to begin, as I pointed out, with that reference back to Deuteronomy. A large part of Isaiah's burden will be showing how God's people have been unfaithful to him. Now, that's not the only thing he says. He's also going to tell us how God is merciful to that people in spite of their unfaithfulness. He's going to tell us how God brings his people through the crises brought about by their disobedience and unfaithfulness. He's going to show us how the Lord's purposes will advance until they're concentrated in one particular figure known as the servant of the Lord. There will be a great deal of grace. There will be a great deal of mercy. There will be a great deal of gospel in the book of Isaiah. Sometimes he's called the fifth evangelist because of how much gospel there is in this prophecy. But as Isaiah introduces his work, he lets us know that a significant element is the demonstration that God's people have not responded to his mercy as they should. Hear what the Lord has spoken that he's calling heaven and earth to bear witness of. I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. That's the summary. That's the basic thrust of the message. God has nourished and brought up children, but these children are rebellious. Now, that can be broken down into more detail. So, verse 3 does that. Animals know who feeds them. Animals know where they belong. He, can, he brings up the ox and the donkey. Then he says, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. In other words, our ingratitude to God puts us on a lower level than irrational animals. Sometimes the cows and the donkeys do better than we do. That's not very flattering, is it? Well, Isaiah didn't set out to be flattering. Isaiah set out to be truthful. When we are ungrateful to the Lord, when we are unmindful of his blessings, when his mercy makes no difference in our lives, we are worse than the animals. We've sunk to a lower level than they have reached. Now, Isaiah does that not to be insulting, but to underline the severity of sin. As the people of God, as children whom the Lord has nourished and brought up, sin is wrong, but sin also ought to be beneath us. Rebellion and ingratitude ought to be rejected as unworthy of those who have been honored the way we have. And that element of honor is brought up in the next verse where you have this contrast played out several times, really. Look at verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, brood or seed of evildoers, children who are corruptors. Now, God had chosen them to be a holy nation, a peculiar people, a seed of of Abraham, a seed of promise. 
children who belonged to him, children who had been rescued as his firstborn from the land of Egypt. But what had they done with their privileges? What had they done with their honors? Well, as a nation, they had become sinful. As a people, they were weighed down under iniquity. Instead of being a holy seed, a seed of promise, they were passing on evil from one generation to another. Instead of being holy and beloved, walking as children of God, they were corrupt themselves and even corrupting others. Now, how does that happen? How do you get to that point? Well, that next phrase is critical. They have forsaken the Lord. Or the same thing is basically restated at the end of the verse. They have turned away backward. The Lord redeems us to be his own. The Lord is merciful to us, but in his mercy, he claims us as his. So how do we go from that to what Isaiah is describing? Well, when we forget the Lord, when we deprioritize the Lord, one thing leads to another. The first step might be making God less of a priority, making God not central, not fundamental, not ultimate in your life. Well, from there to forgetfulness is not a huge step. From forgetfulness to utter forsaking is not a big step. How many people do you know? How many people have you run into who were brought up as children going to church? But something happened along the way. They got out of the habit. And now it's been a year, two years, 10 years, 20 years since they set foot inside a church. If you would have asked them when they missed going to church, when they got out of the habit 20 years ago, hey, are you planning on forsaking the Lord? How many of them would have said, oh, yes, absolutely. That is the plan. I am consciously and deliberately apostatizing. You'll run into a very few people who will tell you that, but it's nothing compared to the bulk of people who casually slip into apostasy, into unfaithfulness, into forsaking the Lord. This is not something that most people deliberately set out to do. It is something that happens to them because they're not on guard against it. They don't live in the practice of gratitude. They don't consider the abundance of the Lord's mercies to them. They have forsaken the Lord. Well, what comes as a result of that? They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. As we go through the book of Isaiah, we'll see that the Holy One of Israel is a title that Isaiah especially delights to use of God. It's very characteristic of his book. It appears in a few other writings of the Old Testament, but it appears far more frequently in the book of Isaiah. Why does it come in here? Why is Isaiah introducing his theme of the holiness of God already here? Well, because this is something that they need to remember. God is holy. And that means, among other things, that God is not like we are. We're so corrupt. 
We're so impure that we get used to sin, and it's easy for us to think, well, that's not such a big deal. That's not that bad. But God doesn't look at sin from our perspective. God looks at sin from his perspective. He is holy. He is absolutely separate from sin. What to us seems like a minor, run-of-the-mill, ordinary, everyday sin is an offense, is an abomination to the Lord. It provokes his anger. Now, this Holy One has entered into fellowship with people. He can call himself the Holy One of Israel. God enters into relationships with people, but God then calls those people to be holy. Israel is supposed to be holy as God is holy. When they forsake the Lord, when they turn away backward, they are provoking the Holy One of Israel to anger. And the outcome or the results of that anger show up then in the succeeding verses. Why should you be stricken again? In other words, they have already experienced God's testimony of his displeasure against them in various afflictions and difficulties that were brought to them. There were multiple military conflicts in the days of Isaiah. There were several occasions when Judah was invaded. There were several occasions when they were harassed and mistreated. One occasion particularly, the Assyrian army came and had everything else conquered except Jerusalem. We don't know to which specific instance Isaiah is appealing here, but he's talking about what has happened the suffering they've undergone. So look at verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate, is overthrown by strangers. So now there's just a little temporary shelter, a booth in a vineyard, a hut in a garden of cucumbers. That's what they've been reduced to, a besieged city. Now, punishment, testimony of God's displeasure against their sin has come, and yet they seem to be asking for more. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. They haven't repented. They haven't returned. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. Now, people will take verse 6 in different ways, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, wounds, bruises, putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Some people take that as a comment on the state of the nation. These are your afflictions. Some people take that as a comment on the state of the heart. This is what your corruption is like. Both make good sense in my mind, the prophet is complaining about both things together. You've been reduced so far. You're asking for more because of your spiritual condition, because of your refusal to repent and return. God has nourished and brought up children, but they have rebelled against him. And even though they've been afflicted, they have not yet repented. They've seen what God's anger can do. They've seen that this is not a comfortable or a happy way to live, and yet they seem to be still set on revolt. In all of this, there's still a recollection 
of mercy. Isaiah is setting out to them their very great wickedness. He's setting out to them that they've forsaken the Lord, that they've violated the holiness that they should have as the people of the Holy Lord. He's condemned them for ingratitude. He's condemned them for obstinacy. And brothers and sisters, those are the main ingredients of sin. Those are the things that lead to other sins that Isaiah will condemn further on. This is the heart. This is the root. Where does apostasy among the people of God come from? It comes from ingratitude. It comes from not considering the Lord's blessings. It comes from taking lightly our responsibility to be holy because we've been brought into fellowship with the Holy One of Israel. When holiness is no longer a concern, when ingratitude is your default state of heart, forsaking the Lord is dangerously close. If they had been destroyed, nobody could have said, well, how unrighteous, how unjust. Oh, no, they richly deserved it. But remember verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. I wonder if any of the kids remember how many people were spared from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. There was Lot, there was his wife, there were his two daughters, but they had to get out. And Lot's wife looked backwards and was transformed into a pillar of salt. So really there were three people delivered from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. And now Isaiah says, unless the Lord had been merciful to us, unless the Lord had preserved a few, we would all have been like that. Now this introduces the doctrine of the remnant, which is going to be very significant for Isaiah and which we need to think about a little bit. Because as we come to apply the truth of Isaiah chapter 1, 1 through 9 to ourselves, We have to distinguish a little bit. We have to be careful so that we make application appropriately. In the Old Testament, the church and the nation, I believe, were distinguishable realities. They were not the same. You could look at Israel as a nation. You could look at Israel as the Old Testament church. And those are not exactly the same ways of looking at them. However... Those two circles have a very significant overlap, don't they? Now, when we come to our own time, the church and the nation are not just distinguishable, they're quite separate. The nation includes a lot more than the church. And the church is not limited to the borders or boundaries of a particular nation. So as we read Isaiah and we think about how to make application, well, if we're making application to the nation, we have to adapt a little bit. If we're making application to the church, we have to adapt a little bit because the way that God's word applies to those different realities is a little bit different. So when I say we and us, most of the time I mean the church, but Of course, once in a while, I will mean the nation, the country. I'll try to be clear about that in order not to create any confusions. Now, in Isaiah's terms, 
The doctrine of the remnant means that within the broader group that can be identified administratively as the people of God, there are only some who have true faith. There are only some who really lean on the Lord. Well, we can make application of that to the church as well, can't we? How many people call themselves Christians? Well, let's not even be as wide as that. How many people actually are members of a Christian church? Lots of them. There's millions of people who are members of a Christian church. Out of those people, how many genuinely trust Christ and follow the Lord? It's not the same number. Now, I don't know what the exact proportions are, but within the visible church, there is a remnant. Within the visible church, there are some who are not genuinely belonging to the Lord, who are not living as they ought to live. Now, when you apply to the nation, of course, then there's all kinds of different religions. There's all kinds of different varieties of unbelief. So there also were a minority group as the church within the nation. I say all of that in order to introduce the application. We need to consider our danger of apostasy. I'm not saying that to the country. I'm saying that to the church. I'm saying that to the people sitting here this morning. As a country, God can interact with us on a national level. You see that happening in the Old Testament. But that's different from the work of salvation. That's different from God's grace bestowed on individuals. The collection of individuals on whom God's grace is bestowed, at least in principle, is the church. The church is in danger of apostasy. You're in danger of apostasy, not because your salvation is not secure, but because you can be ungrateful, you can be unmindful, you can deprioritize God. These are things that happen to people we know. And if they happen to people we know, how can you say that they couldn't happen to you? How can you say, oh no, I'm invulnerable, I'm immune. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. One of the ways that God preserves his chosen people from apostasy is that his chosen people take the warning seriously. If you blow off the warning, that's not a good sign. But if you take the warning seriously, if you pray, if you ask God to help you, if you resolve not to deprioritize God, not to be unmindful, not to be ungrateful, well, that's a good sign. That's how God works to preserve his people. And the beautiful message is, of course, that God does preserve his people amidst general ingratitude, amidst widespread forsaking of the Lord. There were some, there was Isaiah and some others who had not done so. Let's be those people. Let's be the remnant by seeking the Lord, by being faithful to him, by trusting at all times. And where does that begin? Well, remember 
the privileges that God has given. The Lord has spoken to us in his word. The Lord has nourished and brought us up. He provides for our needs in the supper. What is he doing? He is providing for our need of communion with Christ. He has called us to be a holy nation, a peculiar people. People, in other words, set apart for his own possession. He's called us to be a kingdom of priests. Oh, the Lord has given us privileges. It's not just that we're a preserved remnant, but it's that we're a preserved remnant in fellowship with the Holy One of Israel, in fellowship with the one who makes us, who causes us to be holy as he is holy in fellowship with the one whose tender mercies, whose patience and long-suffering is so great that he addresses people who in general have turned their backs on him in grotesque ingratitude, and he calls them to return. He hasn't given up on them yet. He's still speaking. That is the God you are called upon to know, to love, to trust, to be grateful to. May he help us today to do just that. Amen.